Back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, the Hall of Famer Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner, episode 395 on our network. Before we bring Jim on, we have a loaded show today. This is the, the back end of a Wednesday triple header here. Dan O'Shaughnessy first with Jerry Trupiano. Then we had Bob Schaefer entertain the very energetic Rex Hudler, uh, accomplished broadcaster, former MLB, 10-year veteran, and 10 years in the minors, as we, we found out. And then uh, now, of course, the Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Episode 395 in our network. Want to thank our subscribers here. You hit 60,000 last week. And as a former coach, I, of course, upped the bar a little bit. So now we're shooting for 62,000 by Christmas. We're almost there. You guys have met every challenge. Give this one five stars. You know what to do at the end. Write some great comments. And we'll keep battling the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in Major League Baseball. Also, from what I understand, coffee is on the Hall of Famer the rest of December and all of 2024. Just want to make sure Blackout Coffee, be awake, not woke. Use your code right here. And, and Jim, just make sure I got it right. Is it it's is it Jim K20, all caps? Yes, it is. Uh, I, I haven't used it yet myself. I'm just, I may have to go online and get some Blackout Coffee. I don't know if I can use the code there or not. Yep, you can do it online. That's where they. That's the best place to use it. So coffee's on the Hall of Famer through December and, and through all of 2024, 20% off at checkout if you use that code. And even though Ted Kubiak told me he is having a hard time keeping the books on the shelf uh, right now with our, our advertisements for him the last couple of weeks, old school and how to field a ground ball. I'm going to keep doing it, Ted, through, through, uh, through Friday here. So uh, you were our very first guest, three-time World Series champion. Uh, been great to us. So I'm going to be great back to you. Get those two books um, and uh, you know read those. Give them to your baseball lover. With that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. Glad to have you. Well, always glad to be here, Dave. And uh, boy, that's some tough comp, uh, company to follow. Dan Shaughnessy, one of my favorite columnists, and of course Rex, the Wonder Dog. He was a former number one pick, actually, of the Yankees, and uh, just a bundle of energy. And and uh, I will always remember Rex because not that others didn't feel that way, but he was the first player years ago that actually ran up to me. I was doing a Cardinal game on TV. And prior to the game, uh, he came running over and he said, I've been wanting to see you and talk to you as a former player and thank you. I'm making more money than I ever dreamed of. And if it weren't for you guys that uh, started, you know, digging your heels in in 1972, it wouldn't be that way. So uh, I was always appreciative of that, that Rex understood uh, that money didn't just fall out of a tree, but that it took a lot of uh, uh, togetherness on the part of the association to stay together. And the guys today more than ever are benefiting from it. And Rex appreciated it. He's, he's very genuine too. He shared a lot of that on his, on the show today, great messages to kids and parents and his perseverance was amazing. You would think yeah. in today's world, he was a high school, all American in football, 25 division one power five offers, Notre Dame, um, 
was the 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 winner of that Rex uh, Rex Hudler sweepstakes. Dan Devine coming off a national championship. Then George Steinbrenner drafts him number one. Um, so you would think somebody like that, of all people, would have. And now he's an award winning uh, broadcaster. Would have ego, and uh, he's just as humble as the day he he rolled out of bed. He's he, he was a wonderful guest, and what you're saying to me doesn't surprise me. The the, the please and thank you that he approached you with, and the sense of reverence. Yeah. Uh, well deserved, but um, you know, uh, and again, if you if this is uh, if you want to start somewhere else, that's fine. But we, you and I have been mulling over some some research from one of our newest podcast hosts, Jim Colonel. Um, did you do you want to share some of that? What you, what you've learned? Yeah, certainly. You know, he just he just kind of popped on, kind of popped on my scene through you a short time ago. I've I've always wondered where, why he his information was not exposed earlier. Uh, but yet I can understand with the with the propeller heads in the departments that, uh, uh, you know, they tend to not be open to new information. They tend to say, we don't need that. We already know everything. But I found Jim's uh, analysis and teaching a, a proper kinetic motion. And uh, you have shared with me before our, our podcast, there are certainly others that, that have methods like that. But uh, I think somebody should begin to to, uh, to pay attention to Jim and his, uh, his video, uh, The Athletic Pitcher. Uh, he ranked my motion 7 out of 10. Uh, and as I looked at it, I can understand why. I mean, there are a lot of us uh, that have success with less than perfect mechanics, no different than if you saw a, uh, a golf pro that didn't have what you'd call a, a, just a perfect like an Iron Byron swing. Iron Byron is the machine named after Byron Nelson that could just make a perfect swing time after time. You know, we'll get into Shohei Otani, whose mechanics I think that most would say are less than desirable. He's already had two surgeries, but uh, he's certainly getting by with it to the tune of 700 million. But yeah. I think in Jim's case, and I agree, I, I sent a detailed email to Derek Falvey who was the head of baseball ops with the twins and said, uh, with, if somebody doesn't start paying attention to guys like this, uh, Jim, and, and there, there's certainly a few others, uh, with young pitchers, either draft choices or even going into high school and youth baseball and beginning to develop a proper kinetic motion we're going to continue to see big money paid out to guys with imperfect motions. And a lot of them are going to end up on the operating table. Uh, and so I, I think that's, uh, that's something that we, we have to pay attention to. If I were uh, a teenager again, and I was asked to pitch the way today's teenagers are, and I had some coach in Zealand, Michigan say, well, kid, you know, if you want to get it, you're going to have to throw harder. So I would begin to alter my motion to see if I could throw faster. I shouldn't say harder. It's really faster. Uh, I probably would have ended up with an arm injury. But we were not chasing velocity. We were chasing outs. Yeah. And if, if somebody doesn't get a hold on that and start uh, teaching our young kids, just pitch with what you have and learn to get the hitter out, we're going to continue to go down that path of uh, chasing velocity improper mechanics and arm injuries and probably surgeries. When you prioritize accuracy, you've been, you, you've been really clear on that with our audience. 
you prioritize accuracy, speed comes. Because even as a, as a young drafted player, you were told, right, you, if you ever develop that fastball, you're going to be tough. And your body hadn't fully developed yet, even at that age. And, and once it did, you, you came into your own with the extra velocity needed. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, we didn't know anything about velocity. Uh, I don't know if as a young kid I heard the word that often. Uh, and, and certainly in pitching, it, it never came up. It never came up uh, how fast anyone threw other than the famous Steve Dalkowski, uh, who, you know, the legendary stories of breaking umpires masks and throwing it through poor Steve. You know, he would he had games and, and he is now, unfortunately, the late Steve Dalkowski. But he was legendary of striking out 17 and walking 16 or 17 in a minor league game. That's when we began to hear about somebody really throwing exceptionally fast. And then along came Ryan Dern. And then after that, of course, the legendary Nolan Ryan. But in my teenage years, it was just, hey, he could get hitters out. And the results were there. They just gave you the ball. You went out and pitched. And all of a sudden, wow, you, you got them all out and you won the game. And nobody had any records of how hard you threw, how fast you threw. It was just uh, winning pitcher and losing pitcher, and we've deviated. Uh, we've deviated from that, and uh, a lot of it is because we've uh, we've tried to put on and shame on the ones that are doing it. We've tried to put this message to young kids that they have to throw the ball several miles an hour faster than their body is able to do physically, and that's just not fair. And we're we're going to lose a lot of potential good. Greg Maddox type pitchers because of that. Yeah, you're right. And Steve Dalkowski has been real popular on our network the last couple of days. Kevin Kernan did a, a story on a 42 a year old pitcher uh, living in Brick, New Jersey right now, former professional player. His dad pitched with the Pirates uh, way back when, but he's throwing, he's throwing 102 miles an hour right now at the age of 42. He never reached that and he's been studying with a, a scientist at New Jersey Institute of Technology, retired scientist who adjusted his wrist and his elbow and his forearm. So there's, there's all sorts of people up there that are uh, obsessed with his velocity. But I kind of laugh at that. I, I, I told Kevin with that story, boy, you're pu- kind of putting it to them uh, on their own, with their own rules right now. They're saying that if you can throw this hard, you're a major league pitcher. Now there's a 42-year-old that can throw that hard. I'm waiting to see what they do, to see if anybody jumps on that bandwagon. You know, I... Uh... When Johnny Sane uh, left the coaching with the Twins, he was such a popular coach. And, and you know from our visits, my favorite pitching coach. And certainly if you look at his history, the most successful one who produced 20-game winners. But he went over to Detroit. That's when Mickey Lolich and Denny McLean began to log more innings and win more games. And spring training, we'd cross paths with uh, with the Tigers and when I was with the Twins and Harmon Killebrew was there and Harmon would go over to John said, wow, what's your, what do your pitchers look like this year? John John said, man, we got some great arms. And Harm would say, can they get anybody out? <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the question that we ask anymore. Can he get a hitter out? Right. Uh, can he pitch six or seven innings? How many pitches does he have? No, the first message that I hear from everybody whether their son or grandson is in junior high, high school, is what they clocked them at. And I blame baseball for that. I blame, uh, from the MLB network standpoint, StatCast. I blame the radar gun. 
And those are the things that caused us to deviate from what is really pitching and not throwing. And uh, I'm so glad that I, I didn't come up in this era and have been subjected to that because you and I probably would never have met and I'd have had arm surgery and I'd be out working someplace else. Yeah. Well, what, what did, and I know we're an audio show, but what kind of things did, did Jim Colonel point out about your delivery that he thought was? Well, he, he has terms that you'd really have to, uh, it's called arm lag. And just simply that would be when the ball comes out of your glove, if your arm drops, and most of the Asian pitchers, they drop it because they think it helps them hide the ball from the hitter. That's bogus. But anyway, that's their style. And if you don't get the, the, the arm up into the throwing position, which is why fielding ground balls and making believe you're an infielder is such a good drill, then the arm lags or falls behind. So visually, if you could say your arm is back here, now your front side begins to turn to the target and your arm hasn't caught up yet. So that would be what you'd call arm lag. And I would really want Jim to, to explain it. Uh, but I can certainly see it in the pictures. That's why we, uh, we mentioned if, if you're in Chicago, you look at the statue of Ferguson Jenkins at Wrigley Field. And his glove, see, I, and the other thing I did is when I took my, the ball out of the glove, I used the palm of my glove like I was going to slap it at the hitter. Yeah. Backhand. And that kind of generated some speed with my upper body. But actually, you'll see the successful pitchers now, and I wish I'd have done that, they tuck that glove. They tuck it underneath their armpit. Yeah. And that causes the front side to stay closed longer. And you combine that with your arm in the right position, and you're probably going to have a little more velocity and, and uh, better control. So those were flaws in my motion. Uh, I was uh, fortunate to, to get by with it. But, uh, you know, for, for looking at Jim's video and those three or four points of where your arm should be at certain positions, the best way for me to find them was when Johnny Sane got a hold of me and, uh, and we just started doing that fielding ground ball drill, which really I got from even before Johnny from Warren Spahn. Yeah, now that makes sense with tucking the glove too. That that takes that aggressive linear motion and as you're rotating, it, it keeps out of control a little bit. Directly. Yeah, for years, for years, I thought what we did by waving the glove was an advantage because it, it kind of it was the starter for your upper body to start moving toward the target. But these are things now I'd said to Jim, I, I wish I would have had him uh, back when I was in my, my twenties, you know, to, to get my motion a little bit better. Uh, you know, even, even on the major league level, I always felt that I should have done a lot better than what I did. I, I would think I was thinking back, I do it sometimes just sitting around, I'll say, man, if I could have one pitch back a season over 24 full seasons, that one pitch could turn a loss into a win and look what my record would be. So that's how, you know, that's how fine it is that we begin to think about how important different pitches are. But, you know, we did get by with it and, uh, and have a decent career. Yeah. With his evaluation, at what point in time in, in your career did he evaluate? Because I know you adjusted your, your motion a little bit over time. Yeah, he looked at it in the 60s, which was the, when I did the bulk of my uh, innings in the 60s. And 
I just had the traditional windup. You know, we didn't have uh, we didn't have the video technology that they have today. Uh, but I think just like a lot of golfers at uh, the pro tour that had unusual swings, but they repeated themselves, yeah. and that was the that was the main thing that we were we were striving for as a repetitive motion where you could throw the ball generally where you wanted to pitch after pitch. And in today's young pitchers, that's, that's secondary. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been at a couple of camps, most recently the Phillies camp a few years ago, when I saw their pitchers get on the mound uh, to, to throw, you know, to throw what they call their bullpens. Uh, it was just all how hard they could throw and what they measured on the gun and uh, get X number of pitches in and go. I did recognize at that time that I thought, uh, the best, the best pitcher they had there for for motion wise, I couldn't dissect it like Jim Colonel could, but that I could uh, look at his motion and his movement and his stuff that I thought was going to be good, and that was Zach Eflin, who finally the 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 Rays picked up and has been good. Uh, so I just you know that was with the human eye, just looking at different uh, different pitchers, but. Control seemed to be kind of secondary then. It was all how, how hard they threw. And then when you do try to do that uh, as a pitcher, you're not going to have uh, a controlled motion. You're not going to control the pitches very often. That's why we have more three-two counts today. You have higher pitch counts uh, where a pitcher in four or five innings has already thrown 100 pitches because it's as hard as you can and hope they don't hit it. And uh, – and the pitch count goes up. Yeah. And I, as our audience knows, and you know, I was not a pitcher. I was a second baseman. But as a hitter, and I'm, wa- I'm watching pitchers nowadays, I see all these videos on YouTube. We help out these kids with scholarships. I'm evaluating video probably more now than I did as a, as a, as a college coach. But I watch their heads. And the head is the heaviest thing on your body. It doesn't matter who you are. It's the heaviest object on your body. And it controls a lot of your weight balance with this... Um, crazy approach they have to pitching now where it's max velocity. I have never seen, it looks like bobbleheads out there. The heads are jerking to the left, jerking to the right, depending upon, um, there's no head stability and there's no balance, which promotes rhythm and timing. Um, did, did Jim focus on that at all? And kind of get into Otani. I mean, you don't have to go too deep if you don't want Otani glass. Now Did he point out anything major with them that, that caught your eye. Uh, I, I think what he did with the videos uh, with Otani and Glasnow and, and with most of them, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm waiting to get an email from him as to who he thinks has close to a number to a 10 motion. I don't know if anybody does absolutely perfect. Uh, probably like there's no absolute perfect golf swing, but close to perfect that you can repeat time after time. But you could see the arm lag and, and the ball that was not uh you know, if if you had a picture of Fergie Jenkins' statue in Wrigley, you'd see where the the arm is in the right position, directly behind your your head, with the ball kind of pointed at second base. Your your palm kind of pointed at second base. Yeah. Uh, and and in the rest of us, the arm is way behind you and lagging, and that causes more stress on the shoulder and eventually the uh, and eventually the elbow. I thought it was. Uh, Pretty interesting that he actually, Jim actually sent a letter to Nez Bolello, the agent of Otani years ago, predicting that if he didn't change his motion, 
he was going to have injury problems. Oh, Tani's had two surgeries. So Jim is not at all bashful of reaching out and telling people, hey, you're, you're doing this wrong. If you don't change, you're going to hurt your arm. And uh, I was interested to hear you tell me before the podcast, there are maybe a couple of others that are are doing that and are having success. And that's good. I mean, it's like the golf swing. Nobody owns a patent on it or has the final answer. But if you can teach kids as close to a perfect kinetic motion as possible, uh, you're going to do them a favor and uh, help them stay off the injured list and the operating table. Yeah. It took uh, 25, 30 years to create this problem that we're seeing happen in professional baseball right now. So it's going to take another 25, 30 years to correct yeah. this generation. Well, it's, it's the, again, it's the radar gun. When I coached for Pete Rose um, in the eighties, they said, um, what do you want to do with the radar guns? Now I did not know, but Danny Litweiler, who was a longtime successful college coach at Florida state and actually played in the uh, Reds organization, the big leagues for a while, he was credited with kind of, inventing or creating the radar gun for baseball use. And so there was a door in the office that we were in. And I said, is that a closet? And they said, yes. I said, as far as I'm concerned, you can put them in the closet because I don't, I don't care to use it. But I did find value in it in that. Uh, and we've talked about this before. The value of the radar gun is the difference between the speed of your various pitches. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And, and the one speed that that is really uh, important to, to pay attention to is the difference between your fastball and your changeup. And in general, a changeup that is at least 10 miles an hour slower than your fastball uh, has the best chance of being effective. If it's, if it's like six or seven miles an hour uh, slower than your fastball, you, you know, you're probably not going to upset the hitter's timing. And we had a pitcher named Mario Soto who had the, the gold standard for the circle change. He was the first one, I think, that we we heard uh, used it. And I, I think he may have picked it up from Juan Marichal. But, uh, but we found with Mario, when his fastball was in the low 90s, say 93, if his changeup uh, was 85 or 86, it was getting hit. But if it was down there 82 or 83, it was effective. So that's the use of the radar gun that can be useful uh, and not just, you know, not use it just to measure speed. Yeah. You, and you brought up an interesting uh, point, which is, I guess it's a little bit of the hypocrisy of Major League Baseball, where on every broadcast, uh, whether it's a team or MLB in general, they're pumping the, the analytics, the stat cast, the spin rates, all these, these numbers we're talking about. But in conversations that you're having with them, they, they have the desire to go back to the, the time where they could have durable starters and count on that key, you know, number one against number one matchup. Um, talk on that a little bit because you, you brought those, those. That's a great point you brought up there. It's constant. It's opposing opposites and it's just not going to work. Yeah, out. it really is. It's, it's like counterproductive because, uh, I sat in on the original meeting when they introduced StatCast, and a lot of people were gaga about it. And I went home shaking my head saying, this is going to be one of the worst things for our game. Now, financially, it's been a success because you have a lot of, and I used to have to announce them when I was doing uh, games on MLB. Here's StatCast powered by, I'm not going to mention the firm. And you would you would mention it for the, the sponsorship. So it's 
it's brought in a lot of money to the network. But it's one of the factors in creating a boring game uh, because you have all these three, two counts, uh, launch angle. Guys are trying to either hit it out of the park or they're going to swing and miss. So it's strikeouts, walks. And that's all a result of StatCast. It's been detrimental to a lot of pitchers and even to a lot of hitters uh, who who fell into, I, I think, one name that comes to mind when he left the Red Sox was Andrew Benintendi, who said he got away from trying to launch the ball and just hit it to all fields. Chili Davis lost his job as a hitting coach for the Mets because he preached hit it through the middle, level swing. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted launch angle, of course, I don't think they've been in the playoffs too much lately, so that hasn't worked out very well. But, yeah, I just think it was a detriment. And yet the MLB network uh, advertises it, promotes it, and then you look at what used to be Park Avenue. The commissioner's offices are now on 6th Avenue. They're trying to figure out a way to train young pitchers to be able to pitch deeper into games, to be more durable, to eliminate injuries, so you've got two factions there involved in the same industry that are really diametrically opposed. And, uh, and here they're clamoring uh, for starters, and they're paying these outrageous salaries, good for the pitchers, to basically pitch four or five innings. Uh, and why they're doing that, I don't understand, because unless the propeller heads change their mind and say, well, yeah, that's okay. You can let this pitcher pitch a third time through the batting order, see if he can go seven innings. If they're going to cave into that, then you might as well get rid of your analytics department uh, yeah. because they're never going to buy into that. They're never going to buy into uh, you don't want to let that pitcher face that guy more than two times. And yet we have we have Park or uh, Sixth Avenue trying to train pitchers to do just the opposite. So it's counterproductive. I don't know uh, – I don't know who's going to win out in the battle, but uh, I'm I'm happy for the Sonny Grays and Kyle Gibsons and eventually uh, Jordan Montgomery, and they're all going to benefit from these these big time dollars they're pitching in to pitch basically a half a game. Yeah, you know we, we that leads us into I think we want to we want to look at the I guess the gradual extinction of the starting pitcher. I've mentioned the Buckminster Fuller quote several times, which Bill Lee shared me, with me years ago, specialization breeds extinction. Yep. And uh, Lee Sinens, who was an expert research analyst for me at the network, who, who has provided me with a lot of interesting stuff over the years when I was still announcing games there. I think you have a, uh, you have a copy of the tables that he sent us. And uh, going back into the 60s, um, Starting pitchers were were pitching at least seven innings about 51% of the time. Actually, with the Twins teams in the 60s and early 70s, one year we uh, starters pitched 77% of the innings. Oh, wow. And then, you know, in the 70s when the DH came in, that was the high. It was 52% uh, that starters went at least seven innings. And then it has gradually gone downhill to where in the 20s, just these four years, 2020, 21, 22, 23, starting pitchers have gone at least seven innings 12% of the time. And yet we are clamoring and paying outrageous salaries to starters. Well, 
as a general manager, why? If you're only going to use him for four or five innings, why wouldn't you pay the guys that our friend Teddy Simmons has a detailed plan on how you could you could flip that around and make the guys at the end of the game your high-paid pitchers and use them in uh, high-leverage situations so that if you don't spend the money on those guys that pitch sixth, seventh, and eighth innings, uh, you're still not going to win the game. Yeah. And we, we saw, well, there, there's a lot that Snell and Montgomery are still holding out. I think everybody's waiting on the Yamamoto contract, which looks to, to possibly eclipse $300 million. But we talked to Otani earlier. He just he just cashed in at the tune of $700 million, and he's not even going to pitch this year, possibly maybe not two years. Yeah, I think if, if, if he does come back healthy, and certainly Neil uh, L. Attrache, who was their, the surgeon, and he is the Dodgers orthopedic surgeon and a very qualified guy, I think he probably trained under uh, James Andrews, who, who learned from Dr. Job. So uh, I'm sure he gave the Dodgers uh, the approval that, hey, he's going to be all right. But now if you look at Jim Colonel and look at his mechanics, maybe he's not going to be all right. So I would guess if I'm paying Otani that kind of money and I'm the Dodgers, I'm going to make him my closer. Yeah, uh, it makes sense. I'm, I'm going to just let him pitch. I don't know when you're ahead in the game three, you know, uh, three, four times a week if it's that. But I think that's where he's going to be uh, uh, the most valuable. What I found it interesting about his personality, I didn't realize this, and again, they might just be rumors. There might be false, but supposedly he has clauses where uh, he doesn't have to make scheduled team appearances. And I can remember around opening day, particularly with the Yankees, they had the big opening day dinner. And, you know, you would just get into New York and you're trying to either settle into your home or you got luggage coming in and you want a day or so off and you just hated those opening day dinners. But if you didn't go to them, there was a heavy fine <laughs> laying over you. So Otani supposedly has that contract or that appearance clause where he, he doesn't have to go to those things. Now, I'm wondering how that's going to set with Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. they got some big-time, high-paid stars out there. And the other thing in his press conferences, I guess he only talks about his hitting. He doesn't want to talk about his pitching. I don't know why. Yeah, so, you you're correct. Interesting, uh, interesting parts of his uh, of his personality, but he certainly is a uh, you know even with say his flawed mechanics, uh, he is a generational Babe Ruth type talent. Yeah, I did background on it. I know you, you sent me those two notes yesterday, and those those are both correct. Um, that he does indeed have the the clause where it's optional for him to attend team functions, and then. The other one with the interviews, you're you're 100% correct, Donna. He he will only answer questions on hitting um, until further notice. So we all know he had two surgeries. They, they which I found interesting. I looked in the articles. They don't mention Tommy John's surgery in any of the any of his two injury um, reports, as far as the articles go. So it's been going on quietly for a while. They're pretending he doesn't have Tommy John's surgery. We know we all know that he did. Um, yeah. So. I'm, I'm not sure why why the elusive approach to it. What did you think of his contract? Now, I again, it's the rules of Major League Baseball. Um, the Dodgers, as long as they show the balance of the contract in an account at at the, at the point in time every year to the MLB commissioner's office, then they can have this type of contract where it's two million dollars a year through, I believe, nine years, and then sixty four million for the next however many years it is to make it up. Um, I saw. 
Uh, I mean, that's and that prevents luxury tax. They avoid that. And we saw Glass now had to get traded to the Dodgers because Tampa Bay can't afford them. It's it's a it's a vicious circle. I mean, what do you think about the lower market teams? I mean, they should be banging the drum against this, shouldn't they? Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, that they haven't policed themselves a little bit better. I mean, I think there are more have-nots than haves. So I would think they would dig their heels in. If I was a small market owner, I would say, well, I want the Dodgers to pay luxury tax on that entire $700 million. Yeah. And I want them to pay luxury tax on uh, Glasnow's new deal. That's a, and no disrespect to Tyler Glasnow. I mean, when the Rays got him from the, from the Pirates, uh, I thought, wow, what a find. I mean, the guy's like six, seven electric stuff. But when you look at his record in his career, he's 30 and 27. He's 29 years old. He's 30 and 27. I think 120 innings is the most he's ever pitched. Yep. And he's been on the DL. And you're going to give this guy, what, five years at $30 million a year or 20 or something like that? Uh, that's how they're clamoring for starting pitching. And they're just throwing caution to the wind. And I, I'm thinking, okay, you're going to pay him $135 million, then put that on the books against your luxury tax this year so that the bottom-end teams can benefit from the central fund like they're supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and, and supposedly uh, that's not the case. They're they're doing these deferred contracts to uh, to avoid that. And and Otani's isn't the first with the Dodgers. I looked to see what their payroll would be. And in 2040, now audience, we're in 2023 right now. Uh, in 2040, the Dodgers payroll for just Freeman, Betts, and Otani will be 84 million dollars. At that time, Freeman will be 50 years old. He'll be getting five million a year. Mookie Betts will be 47. He'll be receiving 11 million, and Otani will be 45. I don't think he'll be playing yet. He'll get his 68 million. So in in 2040, the Dodgers payroll for just those three guys is going to be 84 million. Well, at 85, I'm not going to be around. But if I was, I'd see if I could be. I'll, I'll get Mookie to hire me as his gardener or something. My gosh, right? I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, you. I. Uh, Again, their their TV money with the Guggenheim Group, and then I think Mark Walters is the one of the principal owners. But their TV locally uh, is worth so much, and I I think uh, the the value of franchises now is is going to continue as high as it is now. It could continue to rise because uh, the revenue they're getting from gambling and uh, merchandising. When I look at pictures of our games in the 60s, and I would say even in the 70s, you might occasionally see some fans with a uniform and it had the name of their favorite player on the back. Well, if you look at, I'll guarantee you, when you look at Dodgers on opening day, uh, 52,000, which I think those opening day tickets have now doubled in price, uh, when you look in the stands, you're going to see about 45 of those thousand with an Otani jersey on. Yeah. And there's another source of revenue that teams didn't have, you know, back in the 60s. So obvious. And it's going to benefit the visiting teams like uh, kind of like Fernando Mania. When Fernando came on the scene in the early 80s, I was still playing then. And I can remember when he came in to pitch against the Cardinals, we had 42,000. And he was quite the attraction. And Fernando wasn't going to pitch five innings and leave the game. He's pitching the whole game. So uh, th that's kind of what I liken Otani to in terms of the appeal. 
but they're going to see him uh, for at least a year. You're going to see him four times a game swinging the bat. That's it. He's got a got a gorgeous swing, gorgeous approach. Yeah, to hitting, and he's a he's a throwback in a way where he's a 300 hitter. He's going to hit 40 homers, and even though they discount RBI, he's going to get you 100 RBI in that lineup. Uh, you know, with with and I I don't disagree either. I think the Dodgers are going to get their money back and then some with the TV shoot the the, the streaming rights in Japan alone um, will get uh, get them the money back. So. Great move by them. I just uh, and smart move because they they understood the rules that MLB offered. And um, unlike the NFL, I think you know the NFL is all about parity. MLB is about you know top heavy, bottom heavy. And but we, we saw Arizona. I mean Arizona lowest payroll in the league. They found a way. Yeah. I just wish they'd take care of those guys a little bit more so they could sustain more than just that one or two. Yeah, I, I hope they do. Yeah, and I I think with the uh, yeah the the uh, the small market teams, I think they're going to have. Uh, more casual fans pulling for those kind of teams now than than the teams that that spend all the big uh, all the big money. Yeah, and you know we, we we talked a little bit about the extinction of the pitcher. The other the other hypocrisy, and we we didn't discuss this in show notes. It came up on Dan O'Shaughnessy when he was on earlier. The, the hypocrisy of the gambling um, in the the Major League Baseball stadiums now, where you can gamble pitch to pitch. Um, and it's it's prevalent. It's it's becoming a part of the game. Do you, do you see that as dangerous as well? Not just for the game itself, but trickling down to the youth like arm injuries. I think it could. We've seen it in the NFL. I remember having uh, lunch, which I would do when I was living in Florida. At least once a spring, I would go up and have lunch with Faye Vincent, who was the commissioner at one time and a you know a big time executive with Columbia Pictures and and other big time companies and. Uh, we talked about the value of franchises and he said, well, legalized gambling is going to come on the scene. And at that particular time, we thought that'll never happen because, uh, you know, the big sign posted in clubhouses, even in the minor leagues, you could be an ax murderer and be reinstated to play baseball quicker than you could if you gambled like Pete Rose did. Yeah. And right. now, of course, the, um, the, the contracts they have with MGM and promoting the promoting the betting is uh, something totally new to baseball. They've always, you know, even though, you know, you go back to the 1919 Black Sox, there's guys that, and I was involved in the team in 59 with Chattanooga Lookouts where guys were suspended from fixing, trying to fix games. Well, uh, you don't have to do that anymore because you can just uh, bet the opposite team <laughs> if you want to or bet balls and strikes or foul balls. And uh, yeah. you just have to believe that somewhere along the line, somebody's going to be tempted to beat the system and they're going to get caught and it's not going to work. But it is a big source of revenue now for teams. Yeah. But think about how many people are, are around just a game in itself from, you know, there's a lot more coaches than there were uh, back before this stuff went on. So the staffs are bigger there's huge analytics departments. There's people that sell popcorn. I mean, there's so many people in and around the game, umpires that, that are privy to subtle information that could oh yeah, somebody an awful lot of money just on one pitch. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a danger, but I, I, I guess MLB feels that the, the benefits, the financial benefits oh. uh, will outweigh the dangers because there's going to be a heavy penalty to pay for anyone who is uh, you know caught within an organization doing it. Yeah, and and I know it was. It's right up there in the in the locker rooms coming out. 
do you think this at all will will force baseball to revisit the Pete Rose situation? I don't think so. I think where Pete hurt himself, and as much as I, I love the guy, I love coaching for him and competing against him, and you know he had a chance to uh, to be remorseful and admit what he did years ago back in uh, the late '80s, and I think uh, if he had shown some remorse at that time, and uh, pleaded for forgiveness and said he made a mistake. I think baseball would have recognized that and uh, uh, he'd be a part of baseball, but he continued to deny it. And now of course he will, for a few extra bucks, he will sign a shirt for you out in Las Vegas. that said, I bet on baseball, Pete Rose. Yeah. So he, he's kind of, uh, he's hurt his, his chances. And well, he's, he's basically uh, his chances are zero. And I, I have brought that up several times to the Hall of Fame saying, uh, should there be some recognition of his records in the Hall of Fame? But there are. There are, yeah. I believe uh, that Jane Clark, the chairman of the Hall of Fame, said there are 32 artifacts of Pete Rose's career in the Hall of Fame showing what he did. So he is not getting ignored right. uh, for what he did. Uh as neither are McGuire or Sosa or Clemens or Alex Rodriguez, uh, but they're just not uh, voted in as an official inductee and given the uh, the inductee, the induction, the honor of the induction, they're not going to be given that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, he's, he's well represented in there in terms of his, his memorabilia. I just, somebody shot me a picture of a ball this morning. That's why I thought about it. And it's, it's his newest signature on balls. It's Pete Rose, 4,256 4, hits, zero steroids. So he's he's kind of taking that approach. Yeah, right. Yeah. Your, your axe murderer thing, like, you know, it's uh, yeah. would have been. Uh, you know, it was such, it was a treat for me coaching for him. And that was the year that he broke uh, Cobb's record. And uh, that, that three weeks leading up to it, you know, the chase, boy, that was exciting that, uh, it didn't draw that many extra people around the league, but the press coverage was unbelievable. Following uh, following the team wherever wherever we went, the Reds, and uh, that was an exciting time. And then to see him finally do it on September eleventh, nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, I remember following that myself as a young. I think I was, gosh, oh uh, boy, 12, 11, 12 years old. Following that because I was a switch batter too. And uh, just was was pumped up to watch. Even I know he was that late in his career. He was he was lefty only, right? And he had Tony Perez was the righty version of him. Was that how they? Yeah, yeah. They put they platooned. Pete would play uh, first against uh, righties and uh, Tony against against lefties. But uh, yeah, it, and we think of uh, and I mentioned it Pete personally many times. Is that uh, you know if he went to a tryout camp today, you'd probably never hear of him. Yeah, no, you're right. That that type yeah, of player run, couldn't throw, didn't have much power, uh, didn't have much range, and uh, the the guys with the radar guns and the stopwatches would be saying, "Well, this guy can't play. He's got no power. <laughs> you know, he's got no speed." But uh, uh, I guess he kind of proved him wrong. He did a little bit. What you know? That's important. We have a lot of scouts on our network that talk about the way guys are evaluated uh, nowadays and it's all metrics um, really without, without valuing the eye test. Pete Rose had makeup, you had makeup. Um, How, I mean, what's your advice to, to people out there in terms of evaluating makeup? How do you tell 
what do you, what do you look for? What do you see? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a scout. I think that's a skill. And I, I think, again, that's an, that's an example of how the, um, the propeller heads, the science has, uh, has taken away from the skill of the scout and has cost a lot of scouts jobs. There are guys that invested years in learning how to evaluate talent. And uh, the, you know, my favorite movie is Trouble with the Curve with Clint Eastwood, which is a great insight into a scout that scouts with his eyes and a, and a scout that just sits there with a radar gun and, and looks at the, the, the numbers. Uh, and I think they've really done a disservice to to the industry and to a lot of potential big league players by eliminating their scouts. As cheap as Calvin Griffith was in Minnesota, the scouts will always say they were well taken care of. He really believed in a good farm system, and and we produced a lot of uh, we produced a lot of good players out of our farm system uh, that got to the big leagues. But nowadays, as you said, it's all done. Uh, digitally, and I just I can't believe you can really tell the value or the uh, the skill of a player by just doing that. I think you need to you need to see him. I would think scouts would agree with me. You see to play the game, and not only that, but how he reacts with his teammates off the you know away from the field. You can kind of tell whether he's a team guy. Uh, I just think you can tell an awful lot more uh, with the eyes and the ears of the game than just uh, looking at the video. Oh, I agree. I didn't do it at the pro level. I coached collegiately for 20 years, but one of my most important evaluations times is when I would do home visits and I would spend my first half a day circulating town without any gear on. And I would ask questions about the kid and the family to the gas station attendant, to the convenience store worker, to people at the school, cafeteria workers, janitors. I wanted to know what what he was like and uh, got the best information on kids uh, where it wasn't prompted. And then watching, uh, going to games uh, where it maybe wasn't his primary sport, watch how he failed, watch how he played when he wasn't the best player. Um, I already knew what he could do, the other other stuff. And just watch how he treated people – referees, umpires, whatever it may be. I went and watched a kid bowl one time. Uh, yeah, was, great. I read it out. Yeah. Good exercise for pitchers. Well, I think of Dick Winsick, who uh, signed me, signed Jack Kralik, Dan Dobeck, and, and quite a few players there out of Michigan that made it to the big leagues. But I know Dick came to back, back to see me three times and then came to visit the house. And uh, I don't know how much behind the scenes – questions he asked of my coaches, things like that. But that was kind of uh, the general way scouts operated is they wanted to find out a lot about your character and your background and uh, as well as what you did on the field. And I think by just using video, you certainly miss out on that. Yeah, you miss on that makeup. We, we had chatted a little bit. I know we kind of we touched on him, but, but bounced around. And I love that quote. I actually put it down as one of my favorites that specialization breeds extinction. Um, you, you've yeah. said that to me. A number of times, and I, I think it it's appropriate in in a lot of areas of our world. Specifically, we talk about multiple sports and in within each sport. But this this kid Yamamoto, um, the 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 other Japanese pitcher, um, have have you watched much of him? What are your thoughts on his? I guess this is a recruitment process for free agency. Yeah. I, I really haven't. I'm see I've seen you know some of the video, but I don't. I'm, I'm sure scouts have gone to see him in person. I've. I don't know how guys like Jim Colonel rank his motion, 
Uh, he certainly has impressed him over in in Japan. But, you know, I remember when the Yankees gave, I think his name was Kai Igawa, I-G-A-W-A. Yeah, lefty. Yeah, I think they gave him uh, back in the days when forty million was like top dollars. I think they gave him like forty million for three years. I don't know that he ever pitched in the big leagues, or certainly not very much. Yeah, maybe. So you, you you have to you have to measure what guys like that and and Hideki Arabu would be. I remember Jim Fergosi, uh was scouting, and he we had a rain delay. I was doing a game in Chicago rain delay and we're in that press box in uh in comiskey park and uh, jim in his usual animated way is striding up and down and he's looking at me he said you know what when you see this arabu he's gonna make you forget clemens he's got a splitter and he went on and on raving about arabu was going to be better than roger clemens but what they don't factor in is the competition that they've been facing in Japan and that they face in the big leagues. Now the competition over there is getting better, but I'll never forget doing a Yankee game. Matt Williams was with Cleveland and Matt Williams turned around uh, Arabu's fastball and hit it over the center field fence in Yankee State center field wall. And our camera happened as Rabu turned towards center field. Our camera from center field had a shot of him. His eyes were as big as round as coffee cups. He was just like, I can't believe anybody hit a ball like that. And from that time on, I, I don't think he had any confidence in his fastball at all. He just could not believe a hitter could turn around his fastball like that. And that's one of the factors of scouting and trying to compare a pitcher that pitched in Japan or any other country coming over here, the competition's going to be going to be different. I mean, our guys are bigger, faster, stronger than they've ever been, and it's going to be a challenge. Otani certainly has met it because he's the same size they are, but uh, that would be the thing I'd look at with Yamamoto. Yeah, um, and he's not the traditional. He's, I think they list him at 5'10 um, as well, so he's a little bit smaller in stature, so – um, a lot of things that aren't the conventional, you know, quote unquote, prototype. Yeah, I think the last five ten pitcher that became a Hall of Famer was probably Pedro. Yeah, and yeah. He, yeah. Maddox was just at six feet, but uh, I think a little more than six feet. But Pedro was five ten. Uh, but you don't see many. Uh, you don't see many. Of course, you don't see many players where. Even in golf, the standard pro golfer years ago, the, the average size was about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, like a Tom Watson. Well, now, you know, they're, they all seem to be over 6 feet and 200 pounds. Yeah, yeah. I, that made me extinct as this middle infielder started getting bigger. My dad said I should have been born in the 40s and 50s when yeah. the 5'9", uh, the, the 150 was in vogue. With it. But, uh, well, um, we covered a ton today. I've kept you for almost an hour. How do we want to? close out what are we forgetting here for our audience well we're just going to keep looking at uh teams that are you know they the otani signing is is an example of as much as the dodgers signed him for the big money for themselves they kept other teams from getting him and that's a big factor too they didn't want the giants to get him they didn't want the padres to get him and they got more money than anybody so they're going to get him just to keep him away from somebody else so 
Uh, we'll see whether this Yamamoto, whether Snell, uh, the rumors every day, you know, you see the rumors because they got to write articles, but who yeah. knows what goes on behind the scenes. But it'll it'll be interesting to see. And I think uh, it's not going to happen till next season, but I, I'm going to be interested to see how these teams use these starting pitchers that they paid big money for. Are they going to continue to make them five-inning pitchers, which basically what Sonny Gray has been, and then who are they going to have pitching innings six, seven, and eight? Uh, most of them, you know, like the Twins have a great closer, Duran. Um, there are other teams now, uh, he's faltered a little bit, so there's even rumors that Class A, the end of the Guardians or the Tribe uh, closer, that they might trade him. But a lot of teams have a ninth inning guy, but if you're just going to use your starter for five, you better invest some money in some guys six, seven, and eight. Uh, and, and that's where Teddy Simmons' plan would, would come into play if everybody ever tries it. Yeah, and going back to you, you had talked about the, the chart and the table earlier on in the show. I mean, mathematically, if these guys are into math and the guys, you know, their starters are only logged in at five, and in a lot of cases it's four and a third seems to be the magic number, um, you would think your payroll would reflect that where your starters would, whatever percentage of innings are pitching as a whole, that they would only log that amount of money. And I would dare say that that's skewed probably to the favor of 30% um, where they're getting that much more money than they are are pitching in terms of total innings over the course of a season. Yeah, it would be interesting if, uh, gosh, I wish they had a big pool of money and they could go back and retro, uh, you know, retro the game where they looked at those of us that pitched 280, 300 innings and say, oh, you guys deserve more money. Right. Now, like Tyler Glasnow, he's never pitched more than 120 innings. So you're going to pay 30 million for uh, a guy that's going to pitch you 120 innings a year. And and as we pointed out, the starters now, uh, from the 70s till now, it's it's only 12 percent of them are are ever going seven innings. So uh, that points out how much more you're going to need those six, seven, eighth inning guys. And if you want the right guys, you, you you should be in a position to pay them big time money to come out and, and be productive for you in those innings. Yeah. And just so for our audience kind of point of reference, um, back when starters threw uh, more innings, 120 innings, you would reach that before the all-star break. Oh, yeah. Easily. So I now- mean, two, 200 innings, you were just sort of, I would say, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the way through the through the season, depending. And when the DH came in, you know, we they didn't pinch it for starters as often. And that's when, um, you know, we were pitching at 300 innings. Mickey Lolich was like freakish. Pitched 307. That was a year before the DH. Mickey pitched 376 innings. And then in 72, 3, and 4, the DH didn't come in until 73. He pitched 300 innings each of those seasons. So basically he pitched – Probably uh, uh, over uh, about a thousand, about twelve hundred innings in uh, no a thousand innings in four seasons. Probably more than that. That's just unheard of today. Oh yeah, that's a career nowadays. So you're not getting as much bang for your buck out of those uh, starters. So again, the I hope they're putting enough thought into who's gonna who's gonna pitch those six, seven, eight inning. Uh, innings for them to lead up to the closer. Well, we'll have to wait for one of those super agents to grab onto one of those middle guys and have a monumental 
middleman contract, maybe pay attention to this show and, and, uh, start throwing the numbers at the numbers guys. They, they, they made all these rules. So if you hold them to their standard, you certainly can, can break the bank with the middle guy, like you're saying, cause it is of the utmost importance now that six, seven, eight, nine inning guy. But, um, yeah, I got a, um, I got an email just to close up. I got an email from Jim Colonel, and uh, I would say the guy that he would say right now has close to a motion like Fergie Jenkins and Nolan Ryan would be Garrett Cole. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, he's proven to be, you know, the best. He's a Cy Young Award winner this year. So, yeah, so he's uh, he's got the motion the right way. That's good. Now, another guy, again, that got pushed out of baseball because of some off-the-field issues and banished to Japan, but Trevor Bauer, uh, they were teammates, actually, uh, Cole, and has some some uh, mechanics similar to that. I'd like to see him get back in the game. Uh, hopefully, the team takes a shot on on him as well. Yeah, he, he was different with his routine, but you can't argue with his uh, success. I mean, he was he was an awesome pitcher. Yeah, he... he uh, Certainly had had success and boom, just off the charts. Hopefully he gets another shot. But uh, yeah, well, Jim, great show again today. Uh, always appreciate uh, our Wednesdays together. And I told Bob Schaefer, I said when I have when I have uh, Bob and 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 Jim back to back, I have to bring out the big sheet of paper because I come out with more notes, more selfish notes for for myself <laughs> uh, than than anything else. So. I always, I always love our conversations on Wednesday. I'm glad our 62,000 get the share. And I just want to say thank you and have a Merry Christmas. You as well. And, uh, and a healthy, happy 2024. And uh, we'll look forward to hooking up again after the first of the year. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be off uh, after this Friday's show. So our audience will be off Christmas week. And the following week, we'll come back the week of January 8th. We will be replaying old shows uh, for the audience. So make sure you keep tuning in. We'll keep you entertained and help you catch up because this is episode 395 now. And remember, coffee's on the Hall of Famer. Uh, the code is Jim K, all capitals with the number 20 after it. Uh, get coffee 20% out, blackout coffee. It'll carry into the new year, so we'll take care of you guys the following year. We will announce some new sponsorships in, in the new year, uh, which will be great. We've got a bat company that, that joined on with us recently, and we'll announce that um, January 8th. But our podcast host will know that before that. And then uh, Ted Kubiak, sorry, Ted, you told me to stop. You couldn't keep the books on the shelf, but uh, old school and how to field a ground ball. Ted was our very first guest, our biggest supporter, three-time World Series champion with the A's. Uh, we appreciate you. So uh, people keep buying that book. Put it on your, your shelves, hand it to your baseball lover. And to the Hall of Famer, Jim Cotton, have a great Christmas with your family. And uh, we appreciate what you do here on Cotts Corner. And with that, enjoy the we'll exit with the little drummer boy again, my favorite song. You got a favorite wow. Christmas song, Jim? You too, Dave. All right. They told me I'm the pom pom. A newborn king to see power on the pom-pom. <laughs>